call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So tell us what your week has consisted of. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of Christmassy things actually, but I tell you a revelation that I know will interest our listeners because I managed to annoy quite a few people with my love of a plastic straw. I expected this not to go down well with everyone. So I have taken the hit and I've invested in a glass straw which I'm now carrying every... This is as important to me now as my mobile phone in terms of carrying it around with me. So, And is it hygienic? Is it hygienic? Well, I mean, I, I try and clean it in between uses, but it's helping the environment. It's sustainable. Um, I appreciate that I was contributing to the problems with climate change by constantly using plastic straws. So here I am. I've taken that hit. I think a round of applause. <laughs> um, um, no, uh, sorry. I do, I do know I annoy people about that, and I am... Changing my ways. An important breakthrough. Yeah. So we've got lots to talk about in this episode. I know we're going to kick off with inflation. We're also going to be talking about Ryanair and the boss of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary. And O'Leary. how much money he's going to make. Yeah, 100 million. My God, I can't even begin to imagine that. And um, we're also talking about boots, what's going on there, because it's looking like the American owners, Walgreens, are going to get rid of it. Yeah, lots to talk about that. Yes. Yeah, so should we kick off with inflation? Because the numbers have just come out. The headline everyone's talking about is that inflation rose by... 3.9% in the 12 months to November, which is down from 4.6% in October and down quite considerably, a lot more than everyone thought. The reasons why, uh, in terms of the how the Office of National Statistics look at this, they've said it's because of transport, recreation and culture, food and non-alcoholic beverages. And that's what's contributed to inflation coming down. It's important to say as well, whenever we talk about inflation coming down, it doesn't mean prices are coming down. It just means they're not going up as fast as they were. Because sometimes it freaks me out when I hear headlines which suggest that prices are coming down and they're not. And if you look at core CPI, which takes out food, energy, alcohol and tobacco, that was 5.1% for those 12 months, down from 5.7% for those 12 months to October. So, so that's been coming down quite a bit as well, which is important. 
I mean, I should start by saying I don't often get excited that we're at a turning point, but I think this is a turning point. I think this is a big moment. I'll go into some of the detail in a minute or two, but I think the consequences are what matters straight off. One is we've seen market interest rates fall already quite significantly. That's the price of government bonds rising. Uh, When government bonds rise in inverse relationship to interest rates, so when government bonds rise, that effectively means market interest rates are falling and other market interest rates are falling. So it's cheaper for the government to borrow money. Cheaper for the government to borrow money, but also cheaper for all of us to borrow money because banks price off market rates. And, you know, it is inevitable that off the back of these figures, we will begin to see better mortgage deals, for example, really quite quickly. Secondly, there have been some pretty pessimistic forecasts for the economy's performance next year. I mean, as we know, we're flatlining at the moment. That's one of the reasons why inflation is coming down, because there's less demand pressure in the economy. And as I say, if you look at something like the Office of Budget Responsibility, they were expecting very low growth next year. I think it's 0.7% they were expecting growth next year, which is as close to zero as you can get. It's almost a rounding error that, you know, on its forecast, we'd be bumping along the bottom. I think things will now be a bit better than that. And I'll tell you why. One reason is that this is a period where companies fix wages for the coming year, wage increases for the coming year, and they have been fixed on the basis of inflation that they thought was higher. So people are getting higher wage deals than the rate of inflation. There is an increase, therefore, in real wages. People will not only feel better off, they will be better off. They will have more money to spend. Now, so long as they're not too anxious about the outlook, they will spend some of that money. And therefore, I think growth could be a bit better than expected. And then secondly, markets are now pricing in, well, possibly six interest rate cuts by the Bank of England next year. So they're 5.25% at the moment, the bank rate. If there were six, that would take us down at the end of next year to 3.75%. It's a much steeper fall in interest rates than we were expecting, you know, only a few, well, actually only a few days ago, really. And again, if those interest rate cuts were to materialise, but more importantly, frankly, if banks were to start to price in those cuts in interest rates in terms of what they offer their borrowers, then again, the economy will be stronger than analysts expect. So purely in an economic sense, this does feel like quite a big moment. Yeah, it's huge because it's not not that long ago we were saying we might not see rates come down until the the back end of next year, if at all. And so what you're saying is it's going to come in a little I think there's a chance that the rates will start to fall in May yeah. and then be on a, I mean, a pretty good chance they're going to start to fall in May, maybe even earlier, maybe April, and then be on a pretty steeply declining curve downwards. Now, this has also got significance, you know, dare I mention the word, for politics. Yeah, I was Uh, just about to say that's the thing now. This is a good time for an election, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure necessarily this particular moment is a good time for um, um, an election. But I mean, I just want to take you back. So about just under a year ago, beginning of this year, I had quite a long chat with Rishi Sunak and he was pretty clear he was betting is pretty much his entire political future on inflation and interest rates coming down and generating something of a feel-good factor, use that awful cliche, which would then be reflected into better ratings for him and better ratings for the government. Now, for most of this year, inflation has been much stickier, much higher 
than he, and in fact, all of us would have wanted. And interest rates looked as though they were going to be higher for longer. So it looked as though he was going to be disappointed in that particular expectation. But until recently, he's looked like a very unlucky prime minister. I mean, he's definitely caught a lucky break with this. You know, as we've discussed before, a lot of the rhetoric that he uses is that somehow he and the Chancellor have been responsible for this fall in inflation. We all know that's not true, that you know, the burden of controlling inflation uh, by raising interest rates falls on an independent Bank of England. It is true that they res- resisted the temptation to cut taxes and raise public spending in a way that would have been inflationary. So they made a sort of of sacrifice on behalf of all of us to try and keep inflation down. And we know they were also relatively tough in those wage negotiations with the public sector. So they took a political hit for it, but they would expect, and this is going to be an interesting question whether they get it, they would expect a political gain from having said that his core aim was to halve inflation. And with inflation coming down, if interest rates are coming down, if the economy revives, he may well pick up a bit more support. He may pick up a bit more support than looked plausible, you know, only a few days ago. Yeah. So on a macro level, this all looks very good and very healthy. But still, like on the front line, you know, I was with my cousin at the weekend who works in a factory. His factory's closing down. Uh, I was in a baby bank, food banks, I tend to go at this time of year to do some work with them. All of them have unprecedented demand for their services. You know, the transport in the north is still appalling. Getting down to London has been hell on the trains. So I get on a macro level, it is great that inflation is coming down. But for lots of people, and also inflation still at 3.9%, which is well above the 2% target. So yes, I get for the politicians, they'll all be giving themselves a pat on the back going, oh, this time next year, it's going to be great. But for lots of people in the real world, things do not feel any better, do they? I'm not remotely saying, you know, happy days are here again. It's all amazing. Everybody's going to be better off, you know, because there are still a lot of people struggling. Businesses, I mean, one of the reasons inflation has come down, let's be clear, is because the economy is struggling at the moment. You know, businesses can't afford some of the wage rises that people feel they deserve. But this is a half full moment, right? This is not a glass half empty moment. You can't help the poorest those on lowest incomes, unless the economy is growing, unless there are tax revenues coming in. It's only on the back of that that you can make the transfers that will allow people to have a decent income. And you can't have, you know, better wages unless companies are prospering. So, you know, all in all, you know, you've got to see this as uh, better news. And just sort of one final point, you know, it is important that we're not quite there when it comes to services inflation. I mean, it is quite striking that if you look at the inflation rate for services, that is still at 6.3%. That is more than three times the target for the inflation rate, which is 2%. So there is more work to be done, but even service inflation is coming down, I'd say, from 6.6% to to 6.3%. So uh, we've got to see this as positive news, unless... Uh, actually, it's terrible. I, I, I'm being reverse Santa. Unless you happen to be going abroad over Christmas, because I'm afraid to say the pound is falling, your pound will not buy as much on your foreign holiday mm. over Christmas. So, you know, stay here. 
listen to the rest is money. What what better way <laughs> to, although, to, to, to spend Christmas? Yeah, although I think Michael O'Leary, the boss of Ryanair, would want us to get on as many flights as possible, wouldn't he? And we're going to talk about him Seamless, now. Seamless link <laughs> to uh, the remarkable story yeah. of the recovery in Ryanair. You've been looking at this. Tell me why Ryanair seems to be the airline that has bounced back from the COVID crisis yeah. better than pretty much any other. Yeah, it's fascinating this because if you look at their share price, it's gone up by 50% this year. It's now at a record high. And the reason we're talking about it now, the reason why it's interesting is because the boss of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary, agreed this deal back in 2019, uh, which was like a bonus deal, where if the share price hits 21 euros for 28 days or more, or the airline reports annual profits of 2.2 billion, he will be given share options worth 100 million euros. Now, the share price is just approaching 19 euros at the moment, and uh, the profit forecast is between 1.85 and 2.05 billion euros. So it looks like he's going to get a bumper pay packet worth 100 million euros. Well, there's still a bit of work. There's still a bit of work. He's not, he's not, work, he's not, he's not, he's not quite there. No, but uh, he's not far off, is yeah. he? And everyone's but, saying that he's probably going to get it. So, yeah, Ryanair is the, the second most valuable airline in the world after Delta. Just to give you a little mini history on this. So it was founded in 1984. At that time, Michael O'Leary was kind of like an advisor, accountant type person to the founder of Ryanair. Um, he then was made... It was called Ryan. Yeah, it was called Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> um, he then became the CFO in 1988 and then the CEO in 1994. But what was really interesting was that he was sent off to do a load of research into what could make this a brilliant budget airline. So he went off to see the Southwest Airlines, which at the time was you know, one of the first budget airlines. So there he learned about things like the 25-minute turnaround of a plane, using single fleets of aircraft rather than multiple ones to try and keep your costs down, and then came back with this basically plan for a no-frills airline, which has worked. And in terms of how it's doing, the shares are at a record high at the minute. It's, you know, profits are forecast to be nearly 2 billion euros and they reckon they're going to double the number of passengers over the next decade. So this is a company that's doing really well and is going, although, as you mentioned, there was a bit of a blip in the story, but they seem to have turned things round on that. And I should just point out, I mentioned it's called Ryanair because it's named after its founder, Tony Ryan, who was the original driving force behind it. And it is an extraordinary story, Ryanair. You know, it's created three billionaires because O'Leary, obviously a billionaire, Tony Ryan, a billionaire, and Tony Ryan's personal assistant, a bloke called Dennis O'Brien, also ended up as a billionaire. Although in his case, some of that was through other business ventures. What about Tiger Roll, the horse that won the Grand National? How's he getting on? <laughs> <laughs> Worth a bob or two. But... You see, I it's not doesn't feel that long ago that we were in the midst of the COVID crisis, and there was a genuine risk that you know all of these big airlines were going to go bust. Yeah, and a few did, like Flybe, they disappeared, didn't they? I remember I was due on a Flybe flight when that happened. But what do you think Ryanair has done better than others? Well, you'll know this from interviewing Michael O'Leary. He's literally my favourite person to interview. You know, when you get asked that question, go on, tell us who's the... And, you know, you could say Trump or, like, the other... My, I really like interviewing Miriam Margulies as well because she's she just doesn't care. And I really like people yeah, who just both, say we've how both, it we've, is. We've both had Miriam Margulies. Um, Have you been Margulies by her? No, there was... Yeah, one of my um, less glorious moments on my 
show, Peston, was Miriam Margulies said something like, I'm about to say something, but perhaps I shouldn't. And the producer shouted in my ear, don't let her. And I, and I, <laughs> and I, and I said, oh, look, listen, I mean, yeah, just say whatever you want to say. Yeah. And she then used the C word. Oh, uh, boom! <laughs> <laughs> Punchy, yeah. And, when, when uh, I, yeah. So uh, it caused a little bit of a stir so, at so ITV. But anyway. I would put Miriam Margulies in the Michael O'Leary camp as well of people who, when you ask them a question, they give you their genuine thought. And with Michael O'Leary, he has never been shy of saying that it's all about money and it's about trying to, you know, get as many people on the flight as possible and, you know, charging them for absolutely everything because, as he, you know, rightly pointed out, that people book and, and will be up for that. And that's work. There was a time where the customer service was really, you know, hit by them being terrible on that front. And he was stopped, wasn't he, for a while from doing interviews because he did keep saying, yeah, I'll charge you to go to the loo and things like that. And so the management were like, right, we better of holding back from doing some of the interviews for a while because I think it's really upsetting people but still he's lived through that and the no frills has totally worked and people are looking for you know for the cheapest ways to travel and if that means they don't get the you know gone are the days when you get a snack on a flight or you know you even choose where you sit or you even sit with the people you want to sit with unless you pay for it and I think we all have accepted that as customers because we know that that means we're gonna get cheaper flights like at the moment it is cheaper for me to fly to London from Newcastle than it is to get the train which is just ridiculous. And again, I'm going to annoy all the environmentalists about that because my carbon footprint is not great at the moment. But it's faster, more efficient and cheaper. And I think Michael O'Leary's totally capitalised on that, hasn't he? Like he has been someone who's just totally gets that. It's no frills and that's the way it works. Yeah, and he's also done something which we talk about a lot on this programme, which is he's taken a long-term view. I mean, you know, it, the, the rule in business is when everybody else is gloomy and markets and the economy are in the pits, that is the moment to take the risk. That is the moment to invest. And that is what Ryanair has done in spades with massive purchases of a new fleet of aircraft. He does take a long-term view. And it is striking to me that I think he's now the biggest airline in Europe. I think he's the second biggest airline in the world. Yeah, second most um, valuable airline in the world after Delta. Which is remarkable, yeah. you know, given, you know, where they started, just flying to the most obscure airports in Europe, places you didn't even know existed, <laughs> uh, uh, they would land in. Do they still do that awful yes. music do, when, do, you do, 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 when you land. Oh. But if you noticed as well, what they, what all the airlines are cleverly doing now is making the duration of the flight a lot longer than it actually is so that they always can say that they've arrived early. And that means every Ryanair flight literally is the do, 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 when you land. I mean, the other thing which I think is very interesting about Ryanair and him is it would be such a scandal if that was a British company handing out that kind of money to its boss. Uh, you know, w one of the things that is very striking is the extent to which remuneration in UK companies, having risen and risen and risen for years because the ideology of the 90s and early years of this century was 
that you couldn't get the best talent unless you paid, you know, at least comparable or gave comparable remuneration packages to what was available in the States. Now there is a massive remuneration gap between UK companies and American companies. And there is an issue because, you know, one of the things we've talked about is how poorly managed many British companies are, is whether actually this, I think, perfectly laudable pressure from shareholders to curb bosses' pay. And, you know, that was a perfectly understandable instinct, particularly as, you know, inequalities have got much worse in this country, particularly post the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, which was rightly attributed to a lot of excessive, uh, you know, risk-taking that bosses, particularly in the banking sector, took in order to inflate their share options and get their remuneration up. There have been measures to introduce uh, remuneration that is much more closely linked to long-term financial performance. Unfortunately, I mean, well, certainly unfortunately for the bosses, maybe maybe not for the rest of us, we'll discuss this. But it means that British bosses cannot earn the kind of sums that O'Leary can earn or that many bosses in America can earn because in America, they just don't have the same restrictions on, for example, share options that are handed yeah. out and remuneration schemes that hand over enormous sums of money for relatively short term performance. There's a good and, example and if, of this just to, yeah, to give you one. So if you look at, for example, in the pharmaceutical industry, the boss of AstraZeneca in the yeah. UK is paid £15 million versus the Pfizer boss yeah. in the US getting £26 million. But there are these examples through every single yeah. industry. And so an interesting question, I was talking to a very big investor about this yesterday. One of the problems with the UK is we don't have enough tech companies here listed on the stock market. Yeah. As soon as a tech company, we create small tech companies, but then they almost all go and get their capital from America and then list on a, a stock market which has a much higher rating you know, American stock markets, valuations are much higher there. But one of the reasons they do that is they can be, you know, these tech bosses can be paid way more if they're thought of as being American companies than if they're thought of as being British companies. And therefore, you know, tech companies on the whole won't list in London because they think if they list in London, they won't get as rich as if they as if they sell themselves why, in America. Why are we so tight here then? Why, why is it because, is it British people just... We just don't like the idea of people being paid lots of money. And why is why is it different in America then? What's the... So there's been a cycle in this. There was a period where I think sort of pre-Thatcher where we had massive hang-ups about, you know, bosses being rewarded for success. And what happened in practice was that companies found all sorts of backdoor routes to reward bosses. So in the bad old days, and shareholders couldn't even see this, bosses were given free flats, free chauffeurs, <laughs> amazing cars, uh, and there was a whole load of disguised remuneration. Just like uh, when you went from the BBC to ITV. Which which, which, which which The disguised remuneration at the BBC, all those hidden chauffeur-driven cars that I had <laughs> and the private jets at the BBC, you're right. I miss those, having gone to a much more transparent organisation like ITV. Anyway... Then the Thatcher thing was all about rewarding for success and some of that went spectacularly wrong. You'll remember all those privatised monopolies, the yeah. utilities with the fat cat phenomenon where these people who, you know, were the same bosses, they weren't particularly talented, they were running businesses that were really easy to generate massive profits out of and they got massive pay rises and that was a scandal. Then we got the sort of dot-com boom and we sort of decided, yeah, we need to 
reward people properly. But that got out of control as well. And it, as I say, the real dampener when it came to remuneration was the financial crisis, but because remuneration structures looked as though they were rewarding excessive risk rather than rewarding sensible business building. So we then tried to develop a much more rational approach to rewarding bosses for genuinely increasing the value of a business. The problem is, and it may be that our system for rewarding bosses here is, you know, if we weren't connected to the rest of the world, would be a perfectly sensible way of rewarding people. I mean, most of us would argue, why does anybody need more than a you know million, two million, yeah. three million quid to, to live? But the problem is if you see your competitors in America earning 20, 30 million, yeah. you know, you, you can move there and you can, can get 20, 30 million. So there, there is a marketplace and, and we, we've got to recognise that. With someone like Michael O'Leary though, do you really think he's incentivised by money because it, I mean he's already earning shed loads isn't he so surely there gets to a point where it's just he he is probably someone who's incredibly competitive you know we know he's won the Grand National with his with his horse and things like that he you know he's someone who is competitive so yeah it is about this macho competitive yeah. thing I remember talking to a guy who had agreed I don't know some 60 70 80 million dollar deal and he was already incredibly wealthy worth hundreds of millions and I said to him you know You've upset a lot of your shareholders. You know, why does this matter? Why are you doing this? You don't need the money. And he said, it's the score. You know, for him, life was about doing better than the individuals or men who he regarded as his close rivals. And if he didn't earn more than them, he was a loser. Now, you might Gosh. say, sad twit, but there are a lot of these sad twits out there and they are running our big institutions. Mm, brilliant. Right, should we uh, have a break? Not a bad idea. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. And we're both fascinated by the rejuvenation of Boots, an incredibly important company, not just in a commercial sense, but actually in terms of the basic infrastructure of Britain. So tell us what's been going on. Yeah, so it's been reported that Boots is going to be listed uh, on the London stock market for about £7 billion. It's currently owned by Walgreens, Boots Alliance. They took it over in 2014. And they tried to float it last year for £5 billion, but pulled out because of market conditions. But Walgreens, if you don't know, is this huge American pharmacy drugstore. I mean, I don't know about you, when they took over Boots, though, I was so excited because I absolutely love I can spend half my holiday in America going into drugstores just to look at all the different products they have. They absolutely nail it on all the kind of medical stuff, but also all the beauty stuff as well. Me and my partner dedicate a day to going to Walgreens. So when they took over Boots... You dedicate a day oh, to go to Walgreens. Because yeah. I mean, everything mean, from, you know, break. your white strips for your teeth down to your the best false eyelashes. We get all of our painkillers from there, you know, our leaves or whatever it is, we literally dedicate time to going to Walgreens. So I thought, great, they're taking over Boots. I remember when I rang my partner to say that. This is going to be amazing. And actually, Boots didn't really become anything like Walgreens so it is still stayed the same but think it's, it's had a bit of a turnaround I'm going to give you a little potted history as well because you know I love to do this and mm. I always find the stories behind these big companies fascinating so it actually started Boots in 1840 mm-hmm. so in the 1840s a fella called John Boot opened a herbalist store in Nottingham this was offering kind of alternative medicines at an affordable price. But then they grew, they took on qualified pharmacists, they moved into, you know, the traditional medicine area, but always were very price focused. They did really important stuff as an employer in the turn of the 20th century as well. So they brought in things like welfare officers for female workers. Uh, They got their teenage staff into schooling. So they employed people who were like, you know, 13, 14, whatever. So they got them education. They made literature more affordable. So they did really cool stuff. on that and they were involved in quite a few medical breakthroughs as well they found a cure for syphilis which was a big problem killing everyone at the time and even were part of developing ibuprofen i mean one of the things that is sort of amazing to me is that ibuprofen is you know one of those uh drugs painkillers analgesics that everybody uses all over the world and you sort of think on that basis boots would be one of the biggest pharma companies in the world but They never quite made it in that sense. And in fact, they had one absolutely disastrous pharma product and they never in the end made it to pharmaceutical giant um, status. And in the end, they sold ibuprofen, all that over-the-counter stuff to Ricketts, who've made an absolute fortune out of that business. And they had to concentrate on retailing. And for quite a long time, they were rather a lackluster, dull retailing company. They did have a sort of cultural problem, which is also part of their sort of institutional strength, weirdly. There's a paradox there. And what I mean by that is this was a business where the status was with the pharmacists who, you know, we all trusted to prescribe the right things for us. But pharmacists who tended to run the stores weren't natural retailers. You know, they might have done years of training to understand, you know, the stuff to give us when a doctor writes out a prescription. But why would they know much about mascara or shampoo or or toothpaste? So for quite a long time, its stores were not particularly sort of imaginative, lively, thriving. Now, let's just go take us up to the present day. A bloke came in to run it 
who I think you've come across. I mean, we've both known him for a while, a bloke called Seb James. Yeah. Um, and so Seb James has been running this business for five years. He was at Dixon's group for a while, wasn't he? He, he was. Yeah. Um, and he's done really, I think, quite an impressive turnaround. He concentrated on four or 500 of their biggest stores on two sectors, health, that is the stuff related to pharmacies, and beauty. And one of the things that I just, this is one sort of, I suppose, aspect of what they were doing wrong um, what they've sort of turned round is, as I understand it, when he took over within Boots, they had in store only one of what they saw on social media as the 10 most talked about beauty brands, one out of 10. And over the last few years, they've added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brands. And they've now got nine out of the 10 most talked about brands. These Did are you- like the brands that people like Rihanna or the Kardashians or, you know, the, totally. these types of guess, So people. guess which brand they can't get or haven't been able to get? Any any idea? Oh, go on. I don't know. I, I knew I'd be able to beat you for once on this kind of fundamental research. Um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. Charlotte Tilbury. I, uh, why, why, yes. do, why do you think Charlotte Tilbury won't go into booth? Well, Charlotte Tilbury's got her own shops for a start and her own retail offering. She probably doesn't see it as being, I don't know, high value enough, maybe. She, I mean, her stuff is quite punchy in terms of price on the market, so... And you, you will find Charlotte Tilbury in your House of Frasers or your John Lewis's or your Fenix or whatever. Um, so maybe she just thinks that it's too low end boots because she is, you know, she's not, a, she's made a hell of a lot of money out of her makeup actually. Um, but do you know, you mentioned about this focus on, um, you know, 500 stores or whatever. You can really see that. So in the last day, for various reasons, I've been in three different boot stores in the Northeast. Newcastle one in Eldon Square, amazing, brilliant, looks the part, you know, all of that good stuff. The local one, Crumbly. near where I live in Tynemouth, you know, and this is not the fault of the staff. They're really, really lovely. Pharmacist in there is great. But it's, I mean, it's rubbish. <laughs> no, it's crumbling. I mean, one of the things that's quite, so they've got something like 2,000 stores, right? They've got four to 500 big ones where they're investing. They've also got about 1,300 very small pharmacies. And the thing about those pharmacies is they serve the community. They just about break even, but they don't make enough money mm. for the owner to want to invest in them in any significant way. And there's a really, really interesting issue around all of that. Um, local communities massively depend on these these, yeah, these pharmacies, the pharmacy element, um, yeah. and so it is really important they don't go bust. But I suspect if they survive, they are never going to be very glamorous. They are never going, you know. And you're right, we've got a local boots around the corner, and it's dowdy, and I yeah. mean, you know, it looks like something out of the 1960s, frankly. Yeah, but it does provide a tremendously useful service. So, you know, not everything that we need has to be glamorous. And I think one of the things that is interesting, therefore, is the commercial interplay between what you might call the public service element of Boots and then the profits. So one of the things that they very sensibly did during COVID was they seconded loads of their staff to do things like testing and vaccinations and they all wore boots badges and they did it not at a loss but not at a profit they did it as a break-even service but it did have a spin-off benefit because they then measured it customers thought oh well you know boots is associated uh, you know in a very direct way we're trying to improve our health and that seemed to encourage more people then to go in and you know 
whether it's buying beauty products or actually take up other of their health services. So the other thing they've diversified much more into is genuine prescription health services of a private sort, but in the areas where you're going to struggle to get any kind of help from your GP over you know, months and months and months because these are sort of low priority mm. needs for, for people or the, or the NHS regards them as low priority. So, you know, for example, they've got a growing business in helping men with erectile dysfunction. They've got a growing business in helping people with hair loss and with weight loss, right? So you can get Wegovi. That, you know, we've talked yeah. a lot about Novo Nordisk, but they will prescribe Wegovi to people who want weight loss treatments. Again, the queues and the waiting list for getting this stuff on the NHS are incredibly long. Yeah. So they're doing pretty well. And things like cold and flu yeah. jabs. I mean, that's where that's where I go every year to get my flu and jab. So they do a lot of this stuff. Now, the other thing is you, you'll have noticed that the this is part of, some would say, broken Britain, the terrible problems that the NHS are having. One of the things that the government announced was they were going to give more power to pharmacies, well, for the first time, power to pharmacies in England to actually write out prescriptions for basic ailments. So from the end of January, you'll be able to go to a pharmacy, you'll be able to go to Boots with a sore throat. And if the pharmacist thinks you need antibiotics, they'll be able to prescribe it. You won't need to go to the GP for that any longer. So th this is this is part of a big restructuring of how we essentially get our health services in general. And in, it's supposed to be taking the pressure off the NHS. So as I say, it's a big deal yeah. um, that this stuff works. It, it feels like a business that's in two parts though, doesn't it? Because you've got the health side, which you've talked about, and then there's the beauty side. And for example, they, they've opened this exclusive, what they're calling Boots Beauty Store in Battersea, which is entirely focused on you know high-end beauty products, yeah. which is to rise Sephora, which is again another shop I dedicate time to when I go to America, <laughs> which is is now opening stores here, and that is a big threat to Boots. Is how well Sephora does here. You only have to ask any teenage girl, you know, where do they want to go in terms of a shop? And if Sephora's on the high street, it's going to be there um, to look at all the different beauty things they do. They do amazingly well at following the trends, having all the influencers products in the stores. So that's going to be a big threat to them. You know, this is a market worth something like £30 billion, the beauty market in the UK. Yeah, we look, look, I mean, competition is important and I don't get any sense from boots that they're remotely sort of resting on their laurels. Did you and, see and, and this chat GBT thing they're doing as well, by the way, in terms of beauty? So they're now going to have this personal shopper, this AI personal shopper, that's going to help customers pick lipsticks and beauty products. Obviously, they've got the people who work in the stores who do that, but they're now going to have this... AI version. Would you trust well. an Would you trust an AI advisor on your skin think, color and uh, all yeah, that? Yeah, I think I probably would because they'd be able to, you know, look at pictures and work out what whether the tone goes with your skin. You, but, don't, but, you, don't, you don't think you'd emerge looking like, you know, one Umpa of Elon Lumpa. Musk's robots? But. <laughs> but the thing that I think is interesting about this is not necessarily what they're doing with beauty in it, but what this might lead to in terms of healthcare. Because you remember, obviously, we were talking about Babylon and their big aim was to use AI to prescribe stuff. Yeah, I mean, one thing they do. I, have, that, I mean, they do have a private GP service. It's tiny. I mean, it's interesting that they don't think that demand for private GPs 
Um, no, but gonna, they could use off. this to test how AI works from a beauty perspective and other products sure. to do it for gifting. And then then that will allow them to have a lot of data yeah, to, to use yeah, yeah no, to exactly. use this for, anyway, for well, prescribing wanted, stuff. Anyway, g- given that they are either going to sell themselves private equity or IPO, and it does look as though they're more likely to list on a stock market, and I want to come back to that briefly before we wrap up. But So their sales last year, I uh, looked up their what they file at company's house. They were up 12.5% year on year for the full year. And their underlying profit for the last year was about 407 million quid, mm, which is not bad. No. But the interesting thing, we started by talking about how there's a lot of talk, and I happen to you know it's true, they are, the owners are thinking about selling this business. And they tried to do this a, a bit more than a year ago, and then for a whole variety of reasons, market conditions weren't right. So they, I think in the first half of next year, we are likely to see a sale of boots, and I say probably the sale of shares on a stock market. Now, you said at the beginning that the reports were that it would be listed on the London Stock Exchange, and I think that is likely. But again, one of our recurrent themes on this program is how the London Stock Exchange's valuations are lower than valuations on other stock markets. And although it would be supremely weird and indeed a humiliation for the London Stock Exchange if Walgreens decided to list boots on an overseas stock market rather than London, and it would be a total humiliation for the London Stock Exchange, I don't rule that out. If at the end of the day, you know, whether it's a European stock exchange or an American stock exchange is able to guarantee the owner a much higher valuation for boots than they could get for a London listing, owners, you know, go where the money is. Um, yeah. Now, I do think there'll be an absolute, an utter humiliation for London if they don't win the the boots listing. And at the moment, I would say that's more likely than not. But this is by no means a done deal. And this is, you know, by no means a story that is over. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about it in 2024. Right. I think we've got time for a couple of questions, haven't we? What have we got? Uh, So we've got Miguel Cabal. I'd like to hear your view on franchises in the UK, the difference between the US and UK on number, public acceptance and rules appears to be big. You're the expert, Steph. Take it away. This is something I'm totally fascinated by for two reasons. One is... You've got um, a vested interest. Yeah, I've got a vested interest because my slime business, Gootopia, is in the process of, of being franchised. So that's one element of it. But but even before that, I've you know, I'm really obsessed with the people behind... Um, can can I just ask you one question though? So, what's your slime business called again? Utopia. Okay, Do I have to start paying you? That's yeah. a ten of you, Emma. <laughs> that's probably twenty now, isn't it? Well, I realised I never say, it, and you say the name of your book all the time. So I've now written it in highlight. Say the name of the business. So yeah, no. But the other reason is because of the way it helps people run and own their own businesses. So I've become really obsessed with this. I've done a bit of work with McDonald's too on their franchise model. So what do I know on this? A number of franchise businesses in the UK. It's about forty-eight thousand. And that number's doubled in the last 25 years. If you compare that to the US, you're looking at over 700,000 and it's been at that number for decades now. And you can so, make a fortune owning a franchise, yeah, can't you? The, yeah. I mean, I, I met a bloke the other day who uh, owns a bunch of Donna Kebab franchises. I couldn't believe how much yeah. money. Well, this is what's really interesting because, you know, you get loads of different types of, of businesses and different types of franchisees. So you get, for example, the big groups like one of them is Adil Group, which is a family business 
but they're the franchisees of KFC, Burger King, Taco Bell, Costa, Anytime Fitness and so on. So they've made a huge business out of this, this family. But then you get the individuals who will take on um, franchises as well. So for example, when I was doing some work with McDonald's, I met a pilot in the RAF, um, a dentist who'd sold his practice and a woman who put her life savings having worked in manufacturing into buying individual franchises of uh, McDonald's and they were doing really well at it. I mean, this woman had opened her first one and within two years was on to her second one. There was a guy I met who was on to his 30th and these were just what I would like to say like normal people who've, you know, wanted... Normal. normal. You meet normal. I know, I occasionally meet them, yeah, who wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but it gives them, I guess, the the security blanket of it already being established as a business. And in terms of the types of franchises as well that you get, you've got like dog walking companies, car repair shops, baby classes, you know, restaurants, cafes, dance classes. And, you know, you, you've obviously got the franchisees who take on the brand, but you also got lots of amazing entrepreneurs who create a brand themselves and then they franchise it out. So for example, there's a franchise called Little Learners set up by a woman called Rachel Fay. And she did this when she was on maternity leave. She'd worked in early years education and she'd had a baby and was like, what can I do, you know, with my time? As I mean, it's hard enough being on maternity leave to be fair, but she wanted to do more. She set up this little kind of class called Little Learners where she taught them about mark makers and all things that can help with your early years development in terms of writing and stuff. And then loads of people kept asking her about it and saying, oh, I wish we had one of these in our area. And in seven years, she's gone from having this one little class to 30 that are franchised across the UK and six in Australia. So she's someone who's become a businesswoman out of it. But in terms of what, going back to Miguel's question on this, there are big differences between the UK and the US. In the US, the rules are a lot stricter and they're more focused on the franchiser rather than the So when you say the, the rules are stricter, you mean you have to follow the rules laid down yeah. by the owner yes. much more closely. Exactly. You, you have more flexibility in the UK. So if I take on a Gootopia yeah. franchise I can do <laughs> what I like with it to. can I well you can I mean what you in terms of what you have to do you you uh, and this is what we've been doing with the business is you kind of do a feasibility study you've got to make sure everything's trademarked and then you basically provide them with an operations manual some initial training and various bits of ongoing support but that's it and, you know, I've seen from us looking at various units to do other shops, the failures in franchising too. Like there's one which is like an American diner business, which did ice creams and shakes and all that. And we went in to look at the unit and this was in a shopping centre. I think it was in Lewisham. Anyway, South London. And it was like a scene from a post-apocalyptic film or something. It was just everything was abandoned because the owners of the franchise, franchisees in this case, they'd not being able to make a good business, even though it was very successful in lots of other places, they'd failed here and they'd literally, because they couldn't afford to pay the bills, abandon it. There were literally sprinkles, like chocolate sprinkles on the side and half-finished milkshakes as if a bomb had gone off and they'd all, all right, ran so paradise, up. Paradise for mice. Yeah, yeah, it really was. It was actually quite minging. But my point being is it does really work for some people, but you still need to, and this comes back to your point about management, you still need to be a good manager in order to be able to do this. So that, that's my little take on, on franchises. Uh, but well, we I'm sure we're going to come back to franchising because it is such an important part of business organisation. Yeah. Now, um, We've 
got a question on the Red Sea, which is obviously uh, big in the minds of, of lots of people at the moment in terms of what it's going to mean for us. So uh, Seaside Mac, great name. I wonder if that's like his name is Mac or whether he wears a Mac. Perhaps his name is Seaside. Yeah, this is a very good point. Seaside Mac, thank you for your question, which is how will events in the Red Sea impact my household budget? So it's an important question and it will have an impact. What we've seen so far is you know is because out of Yemen, the Houthis are sending drones and missiles into the Red Sea, threatening the ships that go through it, tankers, container ships. So we've seen BP rerouting tankers. We've seen Maersk rerouting their ships. And whenever you see rerouting of this sort, it means the cost of transport goes up. It also creates all sorts of uncertainties around whether products will get to their destinations. And so we've already seen the, the oil price rise, which was you know, the rational, logical consequence of this rerouting of tankers. We may well see supply chain problems in other products if it is just harder to get these tankers and these container ships to their destinations. So we started this program by talking about how inflation had come in much lower than everybody had been expecting. But this will have globally, and not just in the UK, but this globally, this is already having an impact on price pressures for energy and potentially for other products too. It's too early to say how significant that impact will be. But as I say, having started the program, being pretty, pretty optimistic and positive that inflation is on a downward curve, if America, Britain, the other allied countries who've sent their warships into the region to protect traffic, if in the end, this doesn't protect traffic. And if this important sea route becomes you know, completely unusable, there will be a temporary impact on inflation. Inflation will rise a bit. Um, and so, yes, it will have an impact on your household budget. As I say, at this juncture, quite hard to quantify how significant that negative effect will be. And in terms of how important this bit of uh, the, the sea is, it, it's the most significant waterway connecting Europe to Asia and East Africa and about 12% of global trade passes through the Red Sea, including 30% of global container traffic. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going through there. It's, yeah, it's, a, really very, it's a very important passageway. Right. We should bring things uh, to a close then for another week. Um, thank you again for your messages and for your questions. It's restismoney at gmail.com to send them in to us or you can send them on our social media pages as well. Or I have noticed as well, people have been putting them in the comments section on the, where they listen to their podcasts. So thank you for doing that as well. But that's it from us. Have a lovely uh, Christmas. Have a merry, merry, merry Christmas. And we will see you just after. Lovely. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye.